the offering's still being passed around a little bit, but I can start talking. When you think of God, what happens in your life? Or maybe I should ask, how much do you think of God in your day-to-day life? And when you do, how does that impact how you live? I ask this because today our subject, as we've come to our, this place in our study in the book of Exodus, we're talking about fearing and worshiping God. And so what does it mean to fear God? How does that impact how you think and how you live? So the reason we're talking about that is because uh, we've been working our way through the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, God is speaking to Israel because they, he delivered them from Egypt. And so in Exodus 19, chapter, verses 5 through 6, might have that up on the screen. They come out of Egypt and God says to them, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you should be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God is making a covenant with Israel to, that they would be a holy people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation before him among the peoples of all the earth. And after he says this, he begins a, an amazing, um, frightening special effects show before the people. Uh, lightning, thunder, rumbling, smoke, without even need, needing a fog machine. The sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses speaks, and God answers, and then he begins speaking the Ten Commandments to Israel. So this is God revealing more of his holiness and power. He's not a God to be trifled with. So when he gets done with the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are like the introduction to his covenant. This is, I'm going to lay out for you like the Constitution, the basics of how you are to live. And he's, then he's going to speak to them in more detail, but um, I'm going to read to you what happens after the Ten Commandments. It's kind of an unusual passage. And this is not spelled out totally on the screen. So chapter 20, verses 18 to 26, if you've got your Bibles or your phones... You can look at that, but I'm just going to read it. I think I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves what I have talked, that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for, for yourselves gods of gold, an altar of earth. You shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build, build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, help us to understand 
how this text makes sense in our lives today, what you want us to hear. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So the first couple of verses there, verses 18 and 19, when people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of trumpet and all that, they, they say, Moses, you talk to us. We will listen. Don't let God speak to us lest we die. So they're, they're freaking out that they're going to die if they keep listening to God. God revealed his will in the Ten Commandments, or literally the Ten Words, for his people who, who he redeemed. If you're careless and forgetful and don't keep his covenant... He's saying you may experience him as a, as a consuming fire. This fearful display did make an impression on the people. The people begged for Moses to be the mediator, for him to be, to be the spokesman. They feared that if Yahweh kept Yahweh, which is God's name, if God keeps speaking to them, they're going to die. Sometimes people say, well, oh, if only God would talk to me. If only he would speak to me. And there's books you can get that, that tell you how to do that. Um, but the people of, of Israel fear they might die if, if God continues speaking to them. So God's voice is not to be taken direct. You need, a, you need a mediator. It's true that now, through Jesus Christ, we, have, we can draw near to God. We have a mediator. It's not like we have to keep our distance as Mount Sinai, where Israel was. So we're in God's family. We're, we're in his household. As it says in, in Ephesians 2, we have access in one spirit to the Father, and we're members of God's household. At the same time, God hasn't changed from being awesome in fiery holiness then to now being more chill. God's not a more chill God. It's not that now that Jesus has come, we can just take God casually. Because of Jesus, we don't have to get too disturbed about God being holy and, and powerful. Even before his resurrection, Jesus awed people. They were amazed when his disciples freaked out when they were in a wild storm on the sea, and Jesus just said, be still, and, and everything stopped. And they said, who is this guy? They were desperately afraid of him. The apostle John, who says he used to lean up against Jesus' chest, sitting around the table, he was very close to Jesus. He's 50 or 60 years after Jesus' resurrection on the island of Patmos. The apostle John is there, and he has a vision of Jesus. And what he sees is this. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. So John, who used to just... I love hanging out with Jesus, sees this powerful image of Jesus, and he, and he falls down like he's dead, and he just passes out. So, why has God revealed his, his covenant with such fearful display of power? Why does he do that? Well, in verse 20, Moses says to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Amazingly, Moses tells them, don't fear. Don't be afraid. He says God is testing them, that the fear of him might be in them. So does that sound contradictory? Don't be afraid so that you can have fear. Don't fear because God wants to put fear in you. 
So yeah, what's up with that? Well, what Moses is saying is, don't be afraid of God as if his purpose is to kill you. Rather, he has come to test you, to bring out what is in your heart. So he's testing to see what's in your heart in order that he may um, be able to turn, his, turn their hearts toward him. He's doing this so that the fear of God may, may govern their hearts, that they may not sin. It's kind of like basic training in the military or uh, f- training camp for football. They, they're not trying to kill you. Well, you may, they may come close, but they're not, that's not their goal because it wouldn't be helpful to kill your, your team off, training them. But through drills and exercises, they test you and push you to your limits. Their purpose is, is to um, not to injure you but to kill, or kill you, but to expose your weaknesses and build into you loyalty to your coaches or leaders and train you to respect and obey their instructions. You have a lot of scriptures that speak of the blessing of fearing, fearing God. So the, the, the Psalms have lots of those. Um, it says, his friendship is with those who fear him. So you don't typically think of being friends of somebody that you're afraid of. Yahweh protects, the Lord protects those who fear him. Psalm 103 says that the Lord's steadfast love and compassion are on those who fear him. And later, King Solomon writes, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Fear of of the Lord makes you teachable. So it gives you a heart open to, to God's teaching. So the fear of the Lord is a good thing. The fear of the Lord is not meant to be a paralyzing fear. The fear of the Lord is meant to produce lo- loving obedience to, 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 to the Lord. The fear of the Lord means to be humbled by his greatness, to believe that he deserves obedience, so that we pursue holiness, and yes, to fear his discipline or judgments for sinning against him. To fear God is to make much of God. To fear God is to regard him as Supreme, majestic, worthy of praise. To fear God means valuing and treasuring him above all else so that you want to please him and honor him. It is treasuring his word in your heart that you may not sin against him. So does God's testing accomplish his purpose? Well, if, if you read the rest of Israel's history, you see they don't go very, very more than a few days without sinning, and they do it decade after decade, century after century, until God finally has to kick them out of, out of the land. So it, what, what, does, what good did that do? Well, what it said is, is the Old Covenant, as good as it was, um, was not complete. It couldn't, it couldn't give what it, what it called for. So God promises he'll bring a new covenant. So we see this in Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel several centuries from now, from this date. After those days, I'll put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And that's what's needed, to have God's law written in our hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So we now experience this under the new covenant in Jesus. But that's a long time from now, so they, they still have... Um, a long way to go before that comes. In verse 21, we see the, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. 
The point of this is Moses kept climbing the mountain, getting closer and closer to the top where the dark cloud of God's glory was. That's where he was back up in chapter 19. So in chapter 19, he's up on top of the mountain, and God says, I'm going to speak to the people, so you go down. So he goes down, and then he goes back up. This forms the pattern for future passages. So what Moses is going to do is he's going to go back up to the mountain, and he's going to get the rest of, of the covenant law from God and bring it back down to them. Moses is the mediator. In this way, he is a type of Christ. He's, he foreshadows Jesus. Just as we couldn't look at the eclipse safely without special glasses, we can't approach God safely without a mediator. Yet God's plan of redemption is to restore intimacy with people like, like we had in, in Eden with Adam and Eve and God. But he phases in this, this plan of redemption over hundreds of years. This phase of God's unfolding plan of redemption is sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant. And so we see that through chapter 23. It's, it's called the Book of the Covenant. Yahweh dictated it. The Lord dictated it to Moses. And he, and he wrote it all down. The laws that the Lord gives to Israel in his covenant with them were to set Israel apart as his special possession among all peoples. Since they were given by an all-powerful God who dwells in fiery holiness, they are never to take these laws lightly. They, the appropriate response to this is uh, to worship. How do you worship this God acceptably? How do you worship this holy God acceptably? How can he accept your worship? It's still a great question for us today in our In our culture of consumer Christianity, we easily think that what is most important in worship is what did I think of the worship service today? Did I like the music? The pastor telling enough jokes? Enough moving stories? What did I think of the worship today? And the real question is, what does God think of the worship? So that's what's most important. What is our worship acceptable to God? Now, this doesn't mean that we're trying to earn God's favor by our worship performance. It's not like the voice where God's like, goes back to you. <laughs> How are you singing? <laughs> wow, you're great. You're awesome. Or, no, you're not. Rather, because of, of the mercies of God, because God has had mercy on us in Jesus, we had to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable or well-pleasing to God, which is our spiritual, our spiritual worship. Because God has graciously given us magnificent saving mercies in Christ, we devote all that we are to him for acceptable, pleasing worship. We devote all that we are to him for accept, acceptable, pleasing worship. And, of course, not only on Sunday, it needs... It needs to leak out into our lives during the week. But what happens on Sunday should shape that and, and empower that and enable that. So what can we learn about worship that is acceptable to God from this passage? So we see in verse 22, The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talk with you from heaven. 
So note what he says. You have seen that I've talked with you from heaven. You didn't see any form of me, only the effects of my presence, fire, lightning, and smoke. Therefore, you only saw that I talked with you from heaven. So worship is accept- that is acceptable to God is based upon his word. Worship that is acceptable to God isn't primarily a function of how I feel about God, though it certainly will involve and engage my heart affections. Worship that is acceptable to God is not driven by my imagination or visualization of God. It's shaped and fueled and filled with God's word. You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. So don't, he says, therefore don't make gods of silver or gold or out of anything else. Gods you make do not help your worship of me. If any of your worship isn't based on my word, but out of your own invention, it's unacceptable. So, so must our worship today be based on God's word and not on our feelings, our imaginations, or our creativity. We worship in the spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. We worship in the spirit glorying in Christ Jesus and we don't put any confidence in anything that we can do. What is the way of acceptable worship? We see it in verse 24 and following. Verse 24 and 25. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings. So acceptable worship is by way of sacrifice. Uh, He says make an altar of dirt. So don't, do, don't make something fancy. Make it obvious that the sacrifice is the thing, not, the, not having a fancy altar. Um, the burnt offering is a sacrifice that acknowledges a sinner needs a, a substitute. So you're learning that you need a substitute to take the punishment for your sins. And the peace offering is an offering of communion with God. So you have a sacrifice and you are able to commune with me. Don't make altars in all the same places that the Canaanites did. Rather, wherever I cause my name to be remembered. So wherever God reveals something of himself, wherever I appoint or wherever I I reveal more of my redemptive plans, that's where you're to worship me. To to remember his name was also to recall everything connected with that, that name. Where... The Lord's name is, there he will be present. Since he is the God of covenant blessings, he will bestow those blessings when he comes. The presence of his name at the altar meant that it was he alone who dwelt there and exercised power there. No other gods could be present. So it's God and Yahweh, no other gods. So your worship will be in response to the, remember, the revelation of his name, Yahweh. So you're continually reminded of who I am and what I've done for you. That I've redeemed you to be my special possession, my holy people. I've chosen you from cho- through choosing your father Abraham. I've blessed him to be a blessing among the nations. So God just chose Abraham by his free grace without any uh, thing that Abraham deserved. And, and thus Israel is birthed. If you do make me an altar of stone, don't make it. Of finely crafted stones. Don't go, don't go to Home Depot. Don't call in a, a, a stonesmith. 
Otherwise, you profane it. It's God's presence and name that make it a place of worship and blessing, not human religious efforts. Christ fulfilled these offerings in the altar, like the plain dirt altar of, or the altar of uncut stones. There was nothing fancy or ornate about the cross. Now, we have a lot jeweled and, and golden crosses today, but then it was just a plain wooden cross. It was the value of the sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice, as appointed by God, as the way of being accepted by him. God's ultimate appointed sacrifice was what God valued more than anything in the universe, his son. Our worship must be centered on God's revelation of his name. This means we don't just worship a deity called God. We worship him as the triune God, the only true God, who is one but exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We worship the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And because God accomplished the work of redemption in Jesus Christ, and Jesus is the revelation of the Father, and the Spirit's main role is to glorify Christ, so, so God says, hey, have you heard of my Son? If you, love, if you love me, you'll love my Son. And the Spirit says, hey, my job is to glorify the Son. So it's the name, the name of Jesus is how we worship God. We come in his name according to what he's done for us. Our worship is centered on the gospel of Christ, what he's done to redeem us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he gave us the Lord's Supper. So we take the bread, we take the cup to remember him at the Lord's table. And then he says, in verse 26, And you shall not go up by by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Any ideas how I apply that text today? (laughs) So the altar was not to have steps. It was supposed to be low enough where they could just get the sacrifice up without climbing up on steps. In ancient times, people did not wear what we call underwear. I hope that blesses you to hear that. <laughs> so if, they, if they, they, they would shame God, they would, they would, it would be an affront to God to expose your nakedness to the altar. Nakedness in Scripture was symbolic of your shame being exposed. When God created the first man and woman, they were naked and, and not ashamed. Those are the good old days. And they, after they disobeyed God and became sinners, they felt shame of being sinners, of, being, of no longer being holy, and of being alienated from God. They tried making coverings for themselves out of leaves, and in their shame they hid from God. God calls them out and confronts their sin. Then he provides the proper covering for their shame, animal skins, meaning the animal had to be sacrificed to cover their sin. So, what do we do with this? We are not to presume to worship God in your own natural condition, apart from trusting Christ, his way of redemption. So then it was animal sacrifices, the priesthood, the the tabernacle, all that he had that pointed to Christ, and now that Christ has come, we only worship God through Jesus Christ. It's the only worship he accepts, and he's, he accepts Christ as a son and as the one who accomplished redemption for us. 
Unless you are clothed with Christ, you, you stand naked before God and your shame is exposed. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus rebukes the church in Laodicea for thinking they don't need anything, for trusting in their own resources and that they are good with God. So in Revelation 3:17 and 18, you say, I'm rich. You say, I have prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counseled you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. If you do have areas of shame in your life, things that you have done for which you are now ashamed, Christ died a shameful death for you. He absorbed your shame on the cross so that your shame could be covered and cleansed with his holiness. If you have trusted in Christ, he has taken away your shame. And you are clothed with Christ. You are dressed acceptably and are accepted by God. But if you presume to worship God in unrepentant shame, so I don't care, I just come to God however I am, and you've got to take it, and you don't care about your shame, then your worship is offensive to him. So, back at the beginning of, the, of this passage, we read that people were afraid of the, of the lightning and the thunder and God's loud voice and smoke and all that. They weren't taking pictures with their smartphones as if this was like a fireworks display. They, they were frightened and thought they might die. They said, Moses, you talk to us, not God. So God tells them through Moses, you've seen that I've talked with you from heaven. And he instructs them as to how they are to worship him. So in Hebrews 12, referring to this time and setting, the author of Hebrews says, at this time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So what's he talking about? He's saying, under Moses, there was a shaking, physical displays of God's power. In light of the recent massively destructive hurricanes and earthquakes and fires we've experienced, some are asking, what is God saying to us? What is God saying to us with these things? And a lot of the answers I hear are not very good answers. But what we know for sure is that until Jesus renews heaven and earth, creates the new earth described in Revelation, God's got a new earth coming, one disaster-free, earthquake-free, hurricane-free, tornado-free, sin-free. Sound good? It's coming. It's not here yet. The present earth groans under its bondage of corruption. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, says Paul. Until that time, the earth shakes and storms and floods and burns. So what is God saying? You need fire, flood, and life insurance. That can only be received through faith in Jesus, Jesus Christ. If you trust in him to be your deliverer from disaster, the disaster of your own sin, and the disaster of death, whether you die in a natural disaster or not. 
you will live forever in a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Hebrews 12, 20, 29, that may be on the screen. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. You know, we're grateful for God's love and mercy. Are, anybody here grateful for God's love and mercy? Yeah. Three of you are. That's great. Maybe we can start a trend. If God was not merciful, if he didn't so love the world, he would not have given us his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. At the same time, we are to offer God acceptable worship that is characterized by reverence and awe, knowing that our God is a consuming fire. Rather than driving us from God, this should make us all the more grateful that this God who is a consuming fire has made us fireproof through his Son. Amazingly, this same God invites us to communion at the table with him. He invites us to a dinner, a meal, bread and cup. This God who took on flesh says this bread is his body, broken for us. This cup is his blood shed for us. For he died the death we should have died for our sin so that we can have the life that he's provided for us. As we do this in remembrance of him, we proclaim his death until he comes. So we're going to move into that this period of our worship now where we're going to receive the Lord's Supper together, the body and blood of Christ. We're going to have people stationed at three places around the room, and they're going to be standing there holding the elements or, or by the elements for you. They're going to say a word of blessing to you. You're going to take the bread, you're going to take the cup, and you're going to go back to your seat, and we're going to take it all together when Greg says go. So this is a time to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus, that he paid the price for our shame. He's covered us with his purity and his holiness, and we have life in him. So I'll pray for us as we prepare to receive the the Lord's elements together. And you can come up, no hurry, prepare your hearts. If you have not yet received Jesus as your Savior, if you've not yet put your trust in him and recognized that only by his, his death and resurrection you, you can be saved and by faith alone in him that you can have eternal life, if you've not yet come to that place, uh, it would be great for you to, to be able to settle that today. We'd be happy to talk with you during or after the service. But if you're not ready to make that choice now, uh, don't take the elements yet because by taking these elements you're saying, I believe that. If you don't believe it, then it's not for you to take the elements. But do believe because he is the only life insurance we have. Let me pray. Thank you, Father, that even though in ourselves we cannot worship you acceptably, you could not accept us just as we are and were, but because we are accepted in Christ who turned away your just judgment from our lives, from us, who deserve to be cast away from your presence forever. Through Jesus, your Son, by your great mercy, you sent into the world so that we could have the joy of living in holiness, sin-free one day, sins forgiven now for sure in this life, 
Thank you that in this life, even though we still, even those of us who have had sins forgiven through Jesus, we still sin. And he, your word says is if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you're constantly cleansing us. We, we pick up a lot of dirt. We spew out a lot of dirt by our living. But because Christ has liberated us from being dominated by our dirt, we have the hope of eternal life. And that one day we'll be made to be just like Jesus in terms of purity. So, Father, as we take these elements together and as we continue to sing your praises, draw our hearts near to you. And may we see more and more of the glory of Christ, worshiping you in spirit and truth, worshiping you through Jesus, worshiping you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loving holiness that comes from you, hating sin, grateful for your that you've, you, you are providing for us a kingdom which cannot be shaken. You are providing us a kingdom that there will be no more hurricanes, no more tornadoes, no more fires, no more disasters. Thankful that, Father, even though we live in such a world now, we have a sure hope of eternal life through Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way we can come to you, Father, is through him. So we're confessing that now, we're, we're, and we're... we're Longing for that day when we are able to enjoy the, the final meal with Jesus in the new heavens and new earth, the, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Wet our appetites for that day. Incline our hearts toward Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. As Emily